0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam, And I'm Jamal Dijani. Jamal, we have a really packed and excellent show today. We're going to be hearing from uh, Rania Masri from you know Beirut and the devastation and the catastrophe that's uh, fallen on the people and the citizens of Beirut. It's really a week past now is still catastrophic we're gonna be talking about the uh, the news of the Biden-Harris ticket, which will be very interesting to hear about. I know that you and I have a lot to say about that. And we also have kind of breaking news today, which has to do with the Israeli government and the UAE uh, attempting to have diplomatic relations uh, normalized in exchange for the cessation temporary cessation of the annexation plan, which will be uh, really requires a lot of discussion. And then if we have time, you know, the not so breaking news about uh, the uh, vaccine approval in Russia. So there's a lot to talk about today, Jamal.
1: That's right. Uh, Also including the uh, great wins by representatives Ilhan Omar And Rashida Tlaib and and others, which we'll we'll also talk about this. Hopefully, we have a lot of news to talk about. You're absolutely right, Jess. Dr. Rania El Masri spoke to us from Beirut, from devastated Beirut, I have to say. She spoke about uh, the uh, meager, I would say, uh, foreign aid offers uh, Lebanon has received so far $300 million. uh, When experts say that the damage needs about six to seven billion dollars just for the damage alone, not to help the economy, not to get people back on their feet, etc. This is just to repair the current damage. He also spoke, of course, about the failure of the Lebanese government and the sectarian leadership. Let's listen. Lebanon's government stepped down on Monday night, less than a week after a massive explosion in Beirut, killed more than 160 people, injured more than five people and left an estimated 300,000 people homeless. Lebanese authorities say that the explosion was caused by 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, which had been stored for six years at a port warehouse. Lebanon was already suffering through its worst economic crisis in decades, coupled with rising coronavirus rate and the government, it has been plagued by accusations of corruption and gross mismanagement. Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr. Rania El-Masri. She's a university professor and member of the political movement Muwatinun wa Muatunat fi dawla, translated as citizens in a state. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Rania.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: First, let me begin by offering our heartfelt condolences to all those who have lost loved ones uh, in Beirut. The devastation is obvious from what we saw on TV, but you are there on the ground. Can you describe to us uh, the current scene as well as the anger and the frustration of the people who have been demonstrating in the streets?
2: You know, it's really hard to believe that it's been more than one week since the explosion because... uh you know how in the united states you, you speak of before 911 and after 911 for us after the explosion everything changed we're dealing with the destruction of a large part of our capital and the destruction of it immediately you know when when we're talking about 300,000 people being homeless that would be the us equivalent of 14 million people losing their homes suddenly we're talking about the destruction of three hospitals, the destruction of infrastructure amounting to more than $5 billion, and the destruction of our main port. Um, talk now is that the port can can continue operation at 30% capacity. So let me be conservative and say the destruction of 70% of our main ports in the country. And just as you're right, all this comes in the midst of an economic bankruptcy and in the midst of increasing COVID uh, pandemic how are we feeling? We are broken. Uh, Nobody, when you ask them, how are you? Nobody says they're fine. They say we're safe um, because we don't feel fine. And the reason we don't feel fine is it's not as if this was an act of war committed solely by foreign aggression. Maybe it was, maybe this was an Israeli led explosion. Maybe it was an American ignition of the ammonium nitrate. But ultimately at the end of the day, we know it was political. Negligence that allowed such a large quantity of sleeping explosives to remain at our port, unprotected and in an insecure environment. Ultimately, this is an issue of political responsibility. And the past week, we have not seen the Lebanese government on the streets in rescue. We have not seen them on the streets protecting people or coordinating rescue efforts or checking people's homes to see if if they're habitable. We have seen, though, the Lebanese army and the Lebanese police attack us as protesters with tear gas, with a new kind of bullet. It's like an explosive that you know opens and scatters and, and distributes pellets, causing many people to end up in, in a critical condition in the hospitals. That the government has been doing. So, yes, we are exhausted and we are extremely outraged. Fortunately, we're also organized organized to be able to continue with the political movement that many of us began years ago to try to take back our country from the political sectarian system.
1: So do you think that the resignation, that the government, um, you know, that, that happened with the government, with starting with the prime minister, is going to solve anything, uh, or is this just like, uh, you know, it's going to be, we are going to go back to the same old, same old with a new government? Basically, doing the same thing as the previous ones.
2: There is a possibility that we're simply that you know the sectarian leaders will simply rotate the names, and there's even been talk of returning Saad al Hariri, you know, for the umpteenth time as prime minister. There is that possibility. There is talk, particularly in the United States of, uh, you know, imposing, so to speak, a neutral government. And of course, we know what neutrality means in the region. That means disarming us completely and having us be vulnerable to Israeli attacks. There is talk about this. There's also some rumblings about, you know, a military uh, rule of the country. There is a lot of divisions among the sectarian leaders amongst themselves. And so there is also rumblings of increased violence amongst them. But these are not our only alternatives. And this is what we need to make very clear. There is a political movement, an organized, growing political movement that sees all these scenarios as simply being different pathways towards the same self-destruction. Every kind of system under sectarian leadership will simply lead to this level of incompetence, and that ultimately is the reason behind this explosion. It, it wasn't deliberate. It wasn't intentional. It was indifferent. It was incompetence. And a sectarian political system is one that requires clientelism. Clientelism, by definition, is corruption. And when you have a system that is by design so corrupt and by design built on clientelistic behaviors, it encourages, it vastly encourages incompetent people to be in positions of authority. And it vastly encourages a lack of decision-making. We know for the past six and a half years that the army knew The courts knew, the port authorities knew, and the ministers knew. They knew. But what they did is send letters to each other dismissing responsibility and putting the responsibility on someone else.
1: Let's talk about the humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we've seen some uh, countries offering aid. And I know from experience from what happened in Gaza, a lot of people offer aid and then it doesn't come. It's it's just... uh, kind of uh, ink on paper in many cases. Yeah. So uh, have you been seeing any of this aid uh, filtering through and and, and and really like what are the immediate needs for the people now impacted and how can people living abroad help?
2: Okay, well, that, that's a number of questions. In Lebanon, we need everything right now. Remember, we are economically bankrupt destruction three hospitals we've had the major destruction of a port and we have more than half a more than a quarter of a million people left homeless this is long term support that's needed we're not simply talking about uh, you know a short term food assistance we're talking about long term support so how much aid have we gotten the estimate is that we need 6 billion dollars the country has gotten together a few days ago led by the french president macron and they pledged pledged 300 million dollars million out of a needed $6 billion. To give that number $300 million some context, let me give you two numbers. When the Notre Dame was burned in Paris, they received aid more than $1 billion to rehabilitate the Notre Dame. One building in France got $1 billion in aid. We're talking about a capital city in Lebanon receiving $300 $300 million in aid. Really, it's it's paltry, it's pathetic. To give you another number, two elections ago, the US government was openly, openly pushing for its allies to win the election. And Feldman specifically said, the US government spent $600 million to influence the Lebanese elections. $600 million spent by one country to influence the Lebanese elections. Now we have countries from Western Europe and the Arab Gulf and the United States all together coming up with $300 million. It is insulting. So what do we need? We need everything. But yet not only is the United States pledging, I mean, they they pledged $15 million. It's really, it's, it's, it's a joke. You consider how much money they give to Israel regularly. Not only have they pledged peanuts in comparison to how much they spent in Lebanon to influence our elections. In addition to that, U.S. President Donald Trump is asking for more sanctions on Lebanon now, more sanctions, not less sanctions. So this is the situation that we're under. We have foreign countries from France to the United States and elsewhere that are deliberately trying to influence our political system in Lebanon to support their foreign objectives at a time when we are bankrupt, in dire need of support and in a lot of political turmoil. They are seizing this as a political opportunity when it comes to the amount of aid that's even been pledged it is an offensive humiliating number that speaks volumes as to what the so-called international community thinks of supporting people in need when it comes to what we need like i said we need everything truly we need everything from um you know engineering advice to materials to to rebuild um, to to basic equipment, to of course, lots of dollars need to be pumped back into the economy. So, and there's there's a lot of organizations in Lebanon that that have are visible through which people in the United States can uh, donate. And I will, you know, I could easily send you a link of those organizations that you can simply then make public. But again, I just want to clarify between the support that people around the world are giving out of their love, and the insinuations and the manipulations that the governments of those same countries are giving to try to influence Lebanon at a time when we are so badly broken.
1: Yeah, I I, I really appreciate it. Actually, please do send us links because people ask about it. And I know a lot of people have been sending uh, money to the Red Cross. Um, But I know that there are other organizations and and people who live in the United States, a lot of Lebanese Americans, Arab Americans and others uh, would like to help. Now, we talked about uh, the political capital. Um, You know, early on, there were rumors flying around, uh, finger pointing, uh, uh, you know, uh, certain countries and, and media outlets try to point the finger towards Hezbollah saying this was a, uh, you know, an ammunition depot that went on fire. That's one of the rumors. Then we saw uh, the Lebanese flag uh, draped or actually was uh, put through a, uh, highlighted through a light thing over the city hall in Tel Aviv saying that now all of a sudden Israel is standing with the Lebanese people. (laughs) And then, of course, now you mentioned Donald Trump. He said, Oh, we got even yesterday, he said, Oh, we're going to have a meeting and I'm going to speak about Lebanon. So, what do you think about all these uh, games? And actually, what, what do the Lebanese people themselves think that's what's going on? About what's going on?
2: Um, well, several things. There is no evidence that there was a weapons depot from Hezbollah that was present at the port. And I personally don't think it fits within the modus operandi of Hezbollah. I'm not saying that Hezbollah is not politically responsible. I hold them equally politically responsible as all the other sectarian parties in this country, because they either knew and did nothing, or they did not know. And and ignorance is also their responsibility, because they have the responsibility to know. But let's just make that clear. Tel Abib with the Israeli government, yes, of course, they try to present themselves as the victims and as the ones that care for the world and as these charity givers. But Fortunately, there are still a lot of people in the world who are not blind. And it's important to recognize that the Zionist state of Israel since 1948 has been committing massacres and violations against Lebanese. The first massacre that the Israelis committed against us in Lebanon was 1948, the Hula massacre on the south between our border and the border of occupied Palestine. And it has been ongoing. It is completely ludicrous for the Zionist state of Israel to pretend to stand with anyone, not just with Lebanon, so long as it commits occupation, apartheid, and racism, and so long as it denies Palestinians their legal and ethical right to return back to their villages and their homes. So let us understand where Israel is coming from. It's taking this as a public relations ploy. However, what is very disappointing, not surprising, but nevertheless disappointing, is when the French President Emmanuel Macron actually says that he encourages, encourages, the Lebanese government to receive aid from Israel. What is this? So at a time again that we are broken economically, not spiritually, just economically, you have France coming in trying to show itself as the protector of Lebanon, trying to influence our politicians to normalize relationships with the Lebanese state of Israel. So, no, absolutely not. And of course, if that were to happen, it basically would be a declaration of civil war in the country. And that, of course, will not happen. But we can clearly see where Macron is coming from. As for Trump, I personally very much appreciate the man's honesty. I, I appreciate knowing exactly where I stand with the man. And he is very honest and very open about you know, his opposition to anything decent, basically. And he is increasing sanctions against Lebanon at this time, and not only increasing sanctions against Hezbollah, but increasing sanctions against the allies of Hezbollah, those that he proclaims to be allies. It's also recognized very clearly, both in Lebanon and those abroad, these sanctions translate into sanctions against political parties. It translates into sanctions against banks, against individuals, against what remains of our industries and companies, again, at the time when we are bankrupt. So this is where Trump is coming from. As for the Lebanese people, there are a lot of us in Lebanon that very much oppose foreign intervention in Lebanon and see it for what it is. But unfortunately, there are still some of us in Lebanon who have lost all hope in their ability to lead their country forward, that they accept colonial rule. So there was a really pathetic petition being distributed where some 45,000 Lebanese actually were encouraging the French to come back and reimpose the French mandate, otherwise known as the occupation of Lebanon by the French authorities. For anyone to be making that demand means that they are really speaking from a level of despair, not only from a level of complete ignorance of history, complete ignorance, okay, but also from a level of despair. What many of us are saying in Lebanon and organizing to fulfill this, is that change must come, but change can only come from within. It can only be led by the Lebanese political parties themselves, and it can only be taken forward when those political parties actually have a vision, and a vision that is inclusive, a vision that is egalitarian, a vision that is honest and political, and that vision can only be the creation of a civil secular state with the full knowledge that Israel is our enemy and with the full recognition that we will then build foreign relations with all other countries. That is what is needed. But not to become further beggars for foreign countries, be they the United States, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, or France. Yeah,
1: it was actually uh, depressing to see some of those people asking for the colonialists to return, uh, to tell you the truth. But uh, also, uh, it was encouraging to see... Uh, the population at large, young, old, uh, cleaning, uh, rescuing people, uh, helping each other, uh, sweeping broken glass uh, all over the streets. Do you think that this uh, catastrophe brought people together, at least uh, kind of, uh, I don't say, wiped out the sectarian rule, or was it just, uh, you know, Different groups just working in their own bubbles.
2: Well, I mean, we need to understand a few things. Uh, We in this country have been living in a country without a government for decades. We've had a civil war from 75 to 91, which basically means we were functioning without a government. We had a government from 92 onwards that did not protect the people in any way. No universal health care, no really decent public education, no support of public infrastructure, and so on and so forth. So what becomes the result of 40 years of living together without a government is that people then learn to take care of each other there becomes an increased sense of community support. We had to support ourselves during the Civil War. Communities had to come together. And by communities here, I mean neighborhoods. I don't mean sects and all that nonsense. I mean neighborhoods. I mean even strangers took care of each other during the war. That feeling continued. To me, it's only natural. It's only natural for people that have lived for decades without a real state to then come in and fill the gap of that state because that is what we've been doing throughout. And people have been coming from throughout the country to Beirut to support those who have lost their homes, to support those who have been traumatized, to help clean up the shops and the stores and the homes, et cetera. We've seen that happening throughout. Does that mean, as you ask, that sectarianism has gone away? No, absolutely not. We remain, quite unfortunately, still a very sectarian society, still a society that refuses to recognize our real identity as individuals, as within our ethnic, linguistic identities. And still, unfortunately, again, because of a lack of understanding of history, because of a built narrative over more than 40 years, possibly up to 100 years, this false narrative that tells me to be scared of you because your great-grandfather and my great-grandfather believed in God and worshipped God in a different manner. I mean, that that's pure nonsense, but there's still remnants of those. And what perpetuates this sectarianism Sectarian identity among individuals are these same political leaders, the sectarian political leaders who either have been in charge of the country since the beginning of the civil war, like Nabi Hebadli and Wili and Shazha and others, or individuals that arose in one way or another during the war or afterwards. Okay? And they are continuing to perpetuate a sectarian narrative because that fulfills their political identity, but it dismantles our real identity as Lebanese and as citizens. And it also completely ignores all the other residents in Lebanon who are not Lebanese. Let us be very aware that in this explosion, yes, more than 150 people were killed. But of those 150 people, more than 50 of them were Syrian workers, Syrian workers. We also lost a lot of foreign workers, Bangladeshi and others, you know, foreign workers. There even been a handful of Palestinians who were killed. Basically, this is our society. This is the fabric of our society, Lebanese, Syrian, and Palestinian living together, working together along with more than 700,000 foreign laborers. And by foreign, I mean non-Palestinian, non-Syrian living amongst us. This is the fabric of our society. But the sectarian political leaders don't even see anyone who's not even Lebanese. And those who are Lebanese, they don't see them as Lebanese. They see us as beholden to the sex into which we were born. So, yes, we take care of each other because that is the only way that we have to exist in Lebanon. But that doesn't mean that this is the way that we should exist because a state has responsibilities and obligations to its citizenry. And that is exactly what we're trying to build in Lebanon, a state.
1: Dr. Rania Al-Masri, we're speaking to you. Uh, You're in Beirut. Uh, Stay safe. I know it's a difficult time. and, And thank you again for coming on Arab Talk.
2: You are welcome. You are welcome. Thank you.
0: Well, that's the voice of Dr. Rania Masri, um, giving us a very sobering and uh, I I would say sober and forthright analysis of what's happening in uh, Lebanon right now, in Beirut right now, Jamal. Uh, From what she's saying, I mean, I want to go back to something we talked about last week. Lebanon appears to be not only a failed state right now, but it seems like the international community has turned its back on Lebanon yet again.
1: It sure did. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm afraid, actually, and this is what I told her on the show, that many people or many countries will be paying lip service and uh, uh, pledging aid, and the aid will not come because we've seen this happening to Gaza, okay? Right. You know, initially when they had this major fundraiser for Gaza... Only few countries paid their bills and the others, kind of like up till today, they haven't paid. So we have a lot of stories. I want to move to the other big story, Jess, which is Israel and the United Arab Emirates have reached a deal that is expected to lead the full normalizations, normalization of relations. Uh, between the two countries. And this is uh, supposedly an agreement that uh, Donald Trump uh, has helped uh, to broker. Uh, Under the agreement, uh, Israel on Thursday agreed to suspend applying sovereignty, this is the language, to Palestinian areas of the occupied West Bank that it had been discussing uh, annexing. Okay. So there were all these not so secret talks because we've been always talking about right. the normalizations plans way back when there were secret meetings between uh, the Israeli foreign minister in London and then Netanyahu and others and so forth. So this is not something uh, new. Uh, and then, of course, uh, President Trump said that the ICE has been broken. I mean, this is like, the ice has been broken, now all Arab countries, Muslim countries will follow suit. And what we're saying, uh, just and I've just had actually uh, issued a statement to a publication that contacted me. Baran said in response to this that uh, really, the, the, the ice has, not, has nothing to do with the ice has been broken, but in fact, it's the trust that has been lost between... Palestinians unfortunately and the UAE and that Israel's of course so called uh, plan of annexation is totally illegal so what they're talking like it's it's like it's like really the mafia you know putting the right. squeeze on you and for something that is totally illegal saying that you owe us money you have to pay to pay you know pay off otherwise we're going to
0: but we're going to give we're going to
1: restaurant, you know. But
0: we're going to give you a break. We're not going to torture your restaurant today. I, I, exactly. But it's we might bla- but we might do it later. It's
1: total blackmail right. using using the unfortunately Palestine as a football. Total blackmail. I mean, what this has to do with anything? And we know number one the annexation is illegal. It was a no starter to begin with. Most countries around the globe, including uh, the EU and the United Nations and others, said that this is illegal. It's a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. They've been talking about it's a violation of all these UN uh, resolutions. And and now it's like a game, uh, maybe more like smoke and mirrors, and to say, oh, we're going to have this fantastic peace offer. Right. And the Palestinians, which they have refused it. I want to sit down, talk about... uh, Crumbs, basically, that Donald Trump is willing to offer them, and Netanyahu as well, and and Jared Kushner. So, I also connect this to the election. You know, like this is also another distraction for Donald Trump' dismal uh, poll numbers, uh, trying to say, "Oh, we achieved peace in the Middle East." This is basically his so his failed deal of the century, basically. A redux of the deal of the century. Right,
0: right. but let's also show and talk about how ridiculous this is from many other perspectives, Jamal. Yes, the annexation is illegal. Uh, Yes, this is a slap in the face to Palestinians. But let's not forget that Israel and the UAE have been having the the almost and secret normalization for many, many years now. And we know that the uh, Emirates have been having these uh, economic uh, agreements with the Israelis for many years. They have gone back and forth kind of below, below the radar or even not so below the radar, uh, well known in various circles in the Middle East. So to call this A breakthrough, to call this a peace plan, to call this anything other than a complete joke is is ridiculous. First of all, the UAE does not represent the greater Arab world. This is not going to break the ice. The only thing that it will do, just to extend the metaphor a little bit, is break the backs or attempt to break the back of uh, what Palestinians have been arguing for for many decades now, that the theft of their land continues to be illegal And I just can't imagine that any other Arab country, and I'm going to ask your opinion about this, because I know you've been surveying the the literature and the the media about this. Has King Abdullah, has King Salman, has anybody come out and praised this agreement between the UAE and the Israelis?
1: Not yet. But as you know, uh, Israel has diplomatic uh, relations with Jordan and with uh, Egypt. Egypt. Those, are the, those are the two countries that uh, has, ha, have signed basically peace agreements. Israel has had exchanges uh, with the UAE. And I, I would assume the praise will come from Oman and maybe Bahrain uh, before anyone else, because also Israel has had contacts. Uh, Netanyahu, as you know, traveled there. And so, so these might follow, you know, now we're talking about small emirates, small countries with very small population. And so something like this, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's late now in the evening, maybe in the next day or two. I really doubt it very much like a big country like Saudi Arabia will say something like that. will praise it. I, 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 I would be surprised. And the... Nothing has changed because they're having exchanges, and recently a a flight, uh, you know, without actually the permission of the Palestinians, flew from the UAE to Tel Aviv, without the request, bringing, you know, coronavirus uh, aid. Right. uh, But Jamal, COVID nineteen, you know, with right uh, uh, kind of cover that. They started that normalization process. So I would I would assume soon you'll have the flights from the UAE to Tel Aviv. Uh, you have um, uh, economical exchanges. Uh, but what I mean, about the UAE it, but it, is not a player in the Arab world or in the Middle East?
0: No, but what it is, Jamal, this is what is not being talked about, is the security collaboration between the UAE and Israeli security apparatus as well as military coordination that's really the thing that is most disturbing about the normalization because there's always been the secretive intelligence service communication between the israelis and uae this is going to normalize further the collaboration militarily and with respect to the intelligence services between these two uh, uh you know between these two governments and that's extremely disturbing you know on uh, on many levels and of course Jamal the 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 big elephant in the room in terms of this normalization in exchange for an illegal temporary suspension of the annexation of stolen Palestinian land did anybody consult the Palestinians on this normalization plan obviously not so it's a slap in the face not only to Palestinians but i think it's a slap in the face to, to the entire Arab world, the people on the street, this is really insulting, that the UAE would have normalization with a thuggish apartheid regime. What's the message that's being sent right now that you're going to normalize with an apartheid regime?
1: Well, their message, and their basically, I would say, joint Hasbara and propaganda with Israel is, look what we've done for you Palestinians. We've stopped... Israel from annexing more land, so that's how the uh, UAE media is trying to spin it. Like this is a great achievement. We, we've, you know, we brought peace, and we also stopped uh, Israel from illegally, you know, I, they don't mention the word illegally, occupying more and annexing more of of your land. And then for uh, Donald Trump. And, and uh, Netanyahu, who, who are both uh, struggling with the polls, this is like they think it's a feather in their caps, basically, that they added a feather in their caps. You know, uh, Donald Trump can use this uh, when he starts uh, uh, upping his uh, campaign against uh, Joe Biden to say, because, you know, one of the things, <laughs> um, if uh, the Biden campaign is as smart, will say, what happened to your deal of the century? So this is like something to put the brakes on that and say, oh, but we did this. You know, of course, sure. that had nothing to do with the deal of the century, nothing, zero. And, but they'll say as a distraction, oh, we brokered an agreement between um, you know, Israel and the United Arab Emirates. So that's one distraction And for Netanyahu. By the way, Netanyahu is going to hurt him at the, at the end of the day. Because his base is the settlers. Right. And the settlers are already, if you ask me about something that I'm actually uh, reading or hearing some noise, I'm hearing and reading some noise from the settlers and their publications saying that they have been betrayed. That's the leader of one of the largest settlement movements in Israel was today, quoted in uh, the Israeli newspaper.
0: But but the reason Netanyahu did it, I mean, complex, but I think um, probably, you know, the the Israeli economy has taken a huge hit because of the coronavirus. Um, I, I spoke about this last week and the week before, I think, the coronavirus epidemic, the Israelis thought they had it under control. They reopened their schools. They've been having a huge spike right now in coronavirus uh, infections throughout. You know, is, Israel has one of the highest rates of infection right now in the region, so they're really hurting. So I think that in some ways, there was a political motivation on the part of Netanyahu, but also an economic motivation because, you know, I, I think, you know, we're talking about military aid and military sharing and military support for the UAE right now coming from the Israelis. But you still didn't answer my question, which is, what is it? what message does it send to the Arab world that the UAE wants to partner and normalize with an apartheid state? That's something that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's gonna resonate well on the streets in the Arab world.
1: Uh, nothing has resonated well on the streets, including the peace agreement between Egypt and Jordan and Israel. So there is a difference between the street and the,
0: the government.
1: right. The government's actually, it's a bad thing because what it says, and if it you know if everything goes through, just like when Anwar Sadat went uh, and flew and spoke in the Israeli Knesset flew to Tel Aviv and then headed to the Israeli Knesset, it said that you can do the same and forget about the Palestinian issue, you know that that used to uh, in, in the past to unify. The Arab word to say this is, uh, you know, an illegal colonial settler project, etc., uh, an illegal occupation. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm being very straightforward. Others will follow suit. It will start with the with the Gulf, with the UAE, maybe like I said, Oman, Bahrain, others. Uh, trust me. Uh, I don't know about other states, but basically the message is saying, hey, uh, you know, hitch your wagon to Israel. Because Israel has the connection with the United States, and then we can
0: get basically, we can hitch our
1: wagon to the United
0: States. Well, maybe this, I think that's an interesting analysis, Jamal. Maybe we should use that as a segue to talking about Biden and Harris, because that analysis that you just made makes a lot of sense as long as Trump is in the White House. But what does it say to the Arab states if in fact Trump is no longer president? in uh after the November elections and it's Biden and Harris. This will get to a, a discussion of my my mi- totally mixed reaction to the picking of uh you know Kamala Harris. Uh you know, Kamala Harris is someone that both of us, you know, we've we've run into her in San Francisco in our various capacities um in the city when she was uh DA. Um That selection by Joe Biden, who calls himself, you know, a Zionist. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, Joe Biden. And also we know Kamala Harris did some really shady stuff with APAC last year. Kamala Harris wants to hold herself out to be this progressive, this champion for progressive causes. Yet what did she do last year, Jamal? She went to the APAC convention secretly. She went the back way so that no one would see her. Go and speak with with APAC. So so my question for discussion as a segue to this normalization with the UAE, maybe, maybe not. Things will be that different with a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, Washington, D.C., compared to a Pence Trump, D.C. Maybe, maybe not. I think the signs don't necessarily point to things being any better for Palestinians, Jamal, or the Arab world with a Biden-Harris administration.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, here's the question, because we're called Arab Talk. Our focus is on the Middle East, on the Arab-American community. We put Palestine as a main issue. We put what's happening in Lebanon as a main issue in Syria and so forth. For the rest of the American people it is not. So the question is as an American what choice do you have? Do you want a uh, four more years which I call of this evil triad between Trump, Pence and Kushner. That's the triad that you have four right. more years of this. Or do you want Biden Harris, right? I think now for a lot of people, the objective is at least the ones who are who don't wear the MAGA hat. They want to get rid of Donald Trump, and this sure. should not be should not be an issue. Now I remember something that actually wise words of uh, uh, Dr. James Zogby, who we've had on the show last week, and he said sometimes you have to go and vote and hold your nose, and and I'll, I'll probably be going out and voting and holding my nose because I don't see anything as far as the Middle East and as far as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, anything good is going to come out uh, from Biden. Uh, he've, or, they've already asked him about, which is basically the move, moving the embassy uh, into, the U.S. embassy into Jerusalem, when every single administration since Eisenhower and so on has uh, refused to do so, right. and uh, he was asked uh, if, if he's going to reverse that, and he would not answer. So that's a big, uh, basically, message. See,
0: that- to me, to me, Jamal, that's a softball question because the obvious answer is no. We are not going to move the u s Embassy to Jerusalem. It should be no, te- no, it's moving to move it back I know, but the obvious answer should be well, of course we 're going to move it back to Tel Aviv because it 's unacceptable to have the Embassy of the United States in a disputed international city like that, and what the Israelis did was unacceptable and is and uh, illegal, so that would be the right answer. The fact that Joe Biden cannot even give that kind of answer speaks to this point that I'm trying to make. Yes, we'll hold our nose. Yes, people will vote for Joe Biden. Yes, Kamala Harris will be an attack dog for Biden against Pence and Trump. But the reality is, when it comes to certain aspects of U.S. foreign policy, I am not convinced that there will be any significant difference, uh, uh, especially when it comes to the question of Palestine. In fact, You know, the other thing that we have to understand about Kamala Harris is that her husband is a longtime supporter of Israel, has been his entire life. And theoretically, that could be yet another influence, another pro-Israel voice and influence within the administration. He will be the first, second man, I think, second husband is what they're going to call him, you know, like the first wife. Uh, he's going to be the second husband. And he has a long history of pro-Israel stances, pro-Israel support. And again, I come back to this infamous thing, Kamala Harris, wanting to be representative of the progressive party of the Democrats. She's not. She's not. Let's She's be not. real I mean, about it. I mean,
1: this thing, just knowing knowing her policies and and her... Service as a district attorney, or whatever. I mean, I mean, this is uh, well known. She's a prosecutor, etc. That so, even though she talks the talk, but her actions don't basically uh, show that she has been progressive uh, in the past. So from that, and is she going to be a good combination to Biden? That's the question. Is she going to help his base? That's going to be the question, reaching to minority, reaching out to minorities, the African-American community, energizing people, because Biden doesn't energize I don't anybody, know, doesn't anyone. No. And, and so I would say, in, and in comparison to the other choices, maybe she is the better choice. And again, I would say the uh, objective probably for a lot of people here is really to get rid of... Uh, Donald Trump. It's gonna be okay. a disaster having him in office another okay. four years.
0: Right. Okay, that's 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 the political wisdom right now. We we went through this so many times historically, Jamal, where in the United States we are forced to say we don't really like this person. We don't really like this administration, but we have to hold our nose. Frankly, I'm a little tired of holding my nose when I go to the ballot box. Yeah, and- I, I, listen, I don't
1: dispute uh, what you're uh, what you're thinking and how you're feeling. I mean, there is that expression uh, that says, you know, you know, the lesser of the evil is still evil, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so. Uh, but from a tactical, the thing is to look at it from a tactical perspective. The choice is probably the worst choice we this nation has faced. Uh, the choice uh, of having the prospect of having Donald Trump and his cabal in office will make uh, George W. Bush as an angel. You know this is this is how bad it's going to be four more years of this administration and that's what people will have to think and evaluate and decide whether they're going to go out and vote for a biden and harris ticket
0: yeah i think that's absolutely right but i don't want our listeners or our viewers or people to go into this thinking that this is some sort of progressive uh change in the democratic party aoc for example who's this incredible progressive force Within the Democratic Party, she's given one minute of airtime at the Democratic Convention. Jamal, and even though Elhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib won hands down, you know their their um, you know their primary uh, challenges from Democrat uh, you know challenges. L- let's not uh, fool ourselves. There's still going to be a big split in the Democratic Party uh, between the progressive. Bernie Sanders wing and the progressive elements and you know the, the Biden Harris wing. And it could backfire. I'm I'm you know, because remember, Jamal, I don't think this is a slam dunk for Biden and Harris. What, it's, what, not. it's not whatever people are happy and excited that Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris and so on and so forth, if people really believe that this is a slam dunk and that this is very easy win. Uh, for the Democrats, you're deluding yourself, trust me. The, well, let's talk about the positive news. So the, the
1: squad, which you've mentioned, yes. ended its primary season with a 4-0, 4-0, 4-0. Yes. Record against the pro-Israel groups. It's okay. pretty impressive. The victories also include, of course, Jamal Bowman. Yes. Unseating. Eliot Engel, Eliot Engel, Elliot Engel, Elliot Engel yeah. who yeah. has been like an institution within that party in New York, and of course, we, uh, in the, this we're talking primaries, of course, because there is still the elections in November, but they're pretty much secured to win uh, in the elections. Rashida Tlaib, she won handily with a big, big margin. Cory Bush handily who supports BDS and she was attacked attacked heavily for that she won Ilhan Omar okay uh, also uh, they poured into the campaign of her um, opponent Melton Moe 25% of his budget came from pro Israel groups that's right and he raised this money within the past 3 months money was right. pouring Left and right to unseat Ilhan Omar. Well, guess what? She also won handily. So I think this is also a very good news. And of course, AOC and so so it's a it, there is we're seeing some change within the party. A you know a party that is progressive on sure. all issues. And B maybe those some of these individuals when it comes to just like uh, handing. Money to Israel, left and right, they would one of them or maybe all of them will question right. that that uh, motive. Is like, why are we doing this? Why are we offering peanuts to Lebanon when it's in utter destruction, and then we're giving billions and billions of dollars to Israel when it uh, basically Israel, uh, um, you know, GPA is uh, one of the best in uh, entire Middle East, if not the world, and so forth. You know, so, so those questions maybe will, will arise uh, no, and I, shake I, up the party and say, <clears throat> let's question a foreign aid, let's question that blind support, let's look at other nations as human beings like the Palestinians. And, you know, of course, we know the Arab American community and the Muslim community in this country supported uh, Bernie and uh, were disappointed. But at least we say we see some uh, light at the end of the tunnel by having these changes that you have two Muslim women in, in Congress, you have progressive uh, people of color who have been elected, and then you start seeing a little bit of change moving this uh, party a little bit to the left instead of way to the right.
0: No, I think, you know, um, that that analysis makes a lot of sense, but just as a counterpoint that the Democrats got very lucky that this year that the convention is going to be a virtual convention because the progressive forces, we remember what happened four years ago on the question of Jerusalem and Palestine and all of the dirty dealings that the Democratic Party did to silence pro-Palestine progressive voices because when people showed up, it was very progressive. The fact that this is going to be a virtual convention for the Democrats means that they can control the narrative and be very careful about what they say and how it's packaged. And it's going to further silence, I think, the progressive voices, Um, which is too bad because the Democrats have made this mistake so many times, Jamal. My question to the Democrat, Democratic establishment is, it why are you making the same mistake all over again? You're going to have four or five people in the Congress coming up who are not only pro-Palestine, but are also BDS supporters. That's that's kind of a big deal, Jamal. Well, I said, hopefully there'll be
1: a change within, in a utopian world, I saw Bernie and AOC, and we ended up with <laughs> Biden, Biden and, Harris. and Harris. So I woke up. Very disappointed. So, like I'm saying, this is actually the reality, and uh, hopefully, um, they, um, you know, they can influence the the Democratic Party and and really reflect the will of the people. Because this is not how everyone feels. That's this right. This is not, you know, what the party represents. Is the party is not in tune with the with the masses, and that's the sad thing
0: about it. That's exactly right. Well, you've been listening to another uh, episode of Arab Talk. Here, we're still Jamal, you know, sheltering in place here in Northern California. Unfortunately, where we're broadcasting from, there's still uh, we're still a red zone. You know that we're still in a really tough uh, spike period here in Northern California, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, well, we have a couple of minutes, Jess, and in those
1: two minutes, I want your opinion. About this Russian uh, vaccine uh, that we keep hearing about, and uh,
0: it's very it just a it's very easy ploy
1: by Mr. Putin, uh, or or maybe it's the Sputnik that when uh, the Russians beat the United States or the USSR at the time by sending its first uh, satellite into space.
0: I have breaking news for everybody who is rushing to take the. Uh, the vaccine that's been developed by the Russian government. Run away from it as fast as you can. Uh, here's the problem with the Russian vaccine, Jamal. It may work, it may not work, but anytime you have a vaccine, there is a standard international protocol that you go through. It's called phase one, phase two, phase three. And even in phase three, you have phase three A, phase three B, which says, you have to give this vaccine in a double-blind study to people you give the vaccine and other people who don't know you give a placebo, and then you follow them for a year. So the the the, the Russian vaccine has only been in development, Jamal, for three or four months, and now they're saying they're going to widely distribute it throughout the uh, Russian Federation uh, starting in October or even November. It is... It is so reckless, Jamal, and it has the potential to to really be injurious and hurtful to so many people because what it does, it'll give Russians two things. One, it may not work, and it could have irreparable damage. And two, it may give the Russians a false sense of security in thinking that they're cured, they have the antibodies, and that they can go around about their normal business That's what got the United States in trouble. That's what got California in trouble. That's what got the rest of the world who, if you want to talk about Brazil and, and the Israelis and things like that, a false belief that somehow things are better and people go about their normal business and then the infection rate balloons again. So I'm afraid that this is a political ploy on the part of Vladimir Putin. I would not trust it. There's no way scientifically you can have a safe an effective vaccine in three or four months. Don't do it.
1: Well, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We want to also thank our our viewers on Facebook and on YouTube. Uh, Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com to download all the latest episodes. And we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.